Good morning, Anthem Church. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege and joy to get to share God's Word, to get to unpack God's Word with you this morning from Exodus chapter 4. We'll be in the whole text this morning of chapter 4, and so open your Word, get ready, we're going to dive in. But I actually want to start with uh, a quote from... Um, Maybe a slightly less than reputable or credible source at times, um, but uh, I want to start with it anyway, because uh, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. So Richard Nixon, during his first inaugural address, said this, until he's been a part of a cause larger than himself, no man is truly whole. Until he's been a part of a cause larger than himself, no man is truly whole. We as human beings, have this innate longing to, be, to live for something that matters, to make a difference, to live for something that lasts. I mean, just imagine for a moment having the chance to take a part in abolishing the slave trade alongside William Wilberforce in 17th, 18th century England. Imagine being able to save a Jewish family in the midst of the Holocaust or standing with the signers of the Declaration of Independence to stand against the King of England. What we're finding in Exodus, though, is that God invites us into a story and a cause even bigger than those. Last week, as we were in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses encounters God in the burning bush, this incredible encounter with the God of the universe, he receives this call of God. He receives this massive call from God uh, to play a central role in all of redemptive history in liberating God's people from captivity for a life with him. Moses is invited into a cause larger than himself, far larger than himself. And in a similar way, we are too. When we encounter God and experience his grace, we are redeemed not just to relax our fears of what happens after we die, Certainly, the gospel saves us and ensures our eternity, but we're also redeemed to live for a cause far larger than ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not a result of works. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has for us a role to play in his redemptive history of all of the universe. To, to be part of spreading his glory and his goodness to others through showing and telling the gospel as we go about our day-to-day -day lives. It's a call to spread God's reign bringing renewal, justice, mercy, hope, beauty, and love to people all around us and communities from here to the ends of the earth. It's a cause that lasts eternally, that makes a difference in the here and now, and that impacts every facet of our lives. And Exodus 4 is all about the pursuit of God's call. It's all about, for Moses, the pursuit of his call, and for us today to consider how when God has since God has called us to be a part of a cause bigger than ourselves, how then do we pursue that call? What's it going to take to pursue that call? Because here's the thing. When we look at the pursuit of call in Exodus 4, two-thirds of this passage hammers 
home the fact that pursuing God's call demands a high cost. Demands a high cost. And it's not the only place that we see in Scripture. In fact, all throughout scriptures, especially in the Gospels, when Jesus calls people to follow after him, yes, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that we're saved and brought into relationship with him. But in light of that grace, he calls us to pay a high cost. And it's grace that fuels us to do that. But following after Jesus has high demands. And it's pretty radical stuff if we're honest with ourselves. We look at the demands of Jesus And they make us pretty uncomfortable. And so why in the world would we pursue God's call? Why would Moses pursue God's call when it cost so much? It's because some things are just worth it. In one of the most famous long-running ad campaigns in history, MasterCard captured just that. And so check out the very first ad from this campaign. Two tickets, $28. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, and two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Accepted all over, even Major League ballparks. Okay, so clearly that commercial is dated. Don't think about those prices too long or it'll just make you mad. But as dated as it may be, it does communicate something timeless. There's some things money can't buy. But as Christians, we realize that there's few things that are truly priceless. There are plenty of worthwhile things to pursue, but there is nothing as priceless. No political cause, no business endeavor, no personal bucket list item, nothing as priceless as pursuing God and his call with everything in you. Yes, pursuing God's call comes at an incredibly high cost, but the results are priceless. In our passage today, we're going to see that pursuing God's call demands radical dependence on him. It demands radical obedience in a way that's incredibly costly to us, but it results in resounding renewal. In other words, pursuing God's call, priceless. It does have a very real cost, but it's worth every ounce of ourselves that we could possibly give away. Even in the cost, we'll see the priceless value, though, of God's call and how he uses even the costly things we give up, the cost that we lay down for our own good and for his glory. And so let's begin to dive into Exodus chapter 4. We'll we'll start in this, this first section, the first 17 verses of the text. What we look at here is the cost of radical dependence. So the cost here, radical dependence on God doesn't sound like it's very costly. He carries the cost, right? And in many ways, yes, like he fronts it on this point. But here's the thing. If you're not willing to lay down your independence, to get over yourself, your pride, your insecurities, if you're not willing to humble yourself, one, that's what's required to enter into relationship with God. Repent and believe requires humbling ourselves and recognizing we bring nothing to the table. But if you're not willing to humble yourself in the pursuit of God's call and radically depend upon him, 
then you're not going to see the kind of results that God wants to bring and use you to accomplish. And so it does come at a cost. Pursuing God's call exposes Moses' self-reliance and insecurities here. Even a kind of imposter syndrome. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I know I can. All right, Whether it's a new ministry position I've stepped into or parenthood, I feel like I just continue to experience imposter syndrome in that. Um, and, you know, schooling, often we, can, we step into these new things and we feel like, like, who am I to be in this role? Right, And that's what Moses is experiencing, some of that. And as he considered what God was calling him to do, he became overwhelmed with fear and anxiousness, despite the fact that God, like in chapter 3, like God had shown up in a burning bush that was not being disintegrated, right? Like God was showing up in this miraculous way still before him. He was in, like he had to remove his sandals because he's on holy ground, right? Like God has said, just got done saying in chapter 3, I'm going to do this for you. And Moses can't get out of his own way. These insecurities of Moses betray his own self-reliance and his unwillingness or his inability to be radically dependent upon the Lord. What we see here in verse 1 is insecurity number one. It's fear of man. It says this, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is saying, like, like, why in the world, God, would they believe me? How in the world am I to persuade these people? You've got to realize 600,000 to a million plus people is what's estimated for the people of God at this point in time. Like, he's thinking, look, they're gonna, like, they haven't seen me in four decades. They're going to think, like, who am I to show back up? They're going to think I'm crazy. It's kind of like how I feel every time I try to convince my boys not to eat chocolate before dinner, right? They just, like, there's no good. Like, I'm not going to be able to convince them on my own, right, that that's the right thing to do. They'll think I'm crazy every time. This Moses, though, on a much more significant level, is like, look, they're going to look at me like I'm a madman. Moses is so focused on himself, though. He's so focused on his own ability to convince them and their perceptions of him that he's lost sight of the power of God. But how often is that us? When we first encounter God, when we first come to faith in Jesus, we're overwhelmed by his power and presence in our life. Like we, we, we fear the Lord as our eyes are fixed upon him. We tell others about him. I mean, it's like those who share their faith most are those who just came to know Christ. Because, man, they, they're just captivated by Jesus. They're on fire for him, and they're just out there. They're not worried about what other people think of them because they're fixated on Jesus. But as we continue to walk with him, Slowly but surely, we, we end up taking our eyes off Jesus at times. Whether it's Moses at the burning bush here, or it's like Peter when he stepped out of the water and stepped out of the boat to walk on water. He was successful at first, but then he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to look around and began to sink. Just like them, we begin to look at the circumstances or the people around us, or who we are inside of us, and as a result, we begin to fear other things more. Our fixation, our passion, and our confidence in the Lord begins to fade. And we lose that dependence upon the Lord. But the Lord calls Moses to put off that insecurity, to put off his independence, to put on radical dependence on him. In verses 2 through 9, we see God call him to this. 
The Lord said to him, what is this in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And, and Moses ran from it, rightfully so. Like, I mean, you're probably crazy if you don't, right? Uh, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow, diseased. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God hammers home to Moses, look, you don't have nothing to fear if you just radically depend on my power. Radical dependence on my power will be what convinces the Israelites, to believe you, to trust in you, to experience the renewal that I have for them. And God provides three signs to show off his power, to convince the people by his power, not by Moses' like, art of persuasion. And these signs show off God's power in several ways. Number one, the staff. All right, when he throws the staff on the ground, what does it become? It becomes a snake. Well, the snake is, it was, a, it was an image that was always associated with Pharaoh. During that day. And so it was associated with the most powerful ruler on the face of the planet. And what God is showing by then having Moses pick it up by the tail and it becoming a staff again is that God has power even over the greatest rulers of the earth. He has power over the kingdoms. And, and Egypt was, as we will see as we go throughout Exodus, a picture of the kingdom of darkness. And so what God is saying is he has power over all the rulers and authorities, both physical and spiritual. All right, and so that's sign number one. Sign number two, this whole like sticking the hand in, sticking the hand out thing, like what's with that? Well, God is showing off his power twofold here. One, when he sticks his hand in and it comes out leprous. Leprosy was a sign of judgment for sin in the ancient world. Everyone would have recognized that immediately. And so when he, when he sticks his hand in and brings it out, God is showing off his power to bring judgment, that he is the one that is going to judge the living and the dead. But then he, he puts his hand back in and brings it back out and it's restored and God's showing off his power in a different way. Showing off his power to save from that judgment, to heal people as well. And so we see two signs there showing off God's power. But God says, look, if they won't believe even those, I've got even one better for you. The Nile was a picture of the source of life for all of Egypt. Like, I mean, it's what made the land so fertile, right? It was this, this raging force in Israel as well. Like this is where like the, everything in Egypt like centered upon the Nile and its vitality. And what does God do? Is he turns it into blood. And he says, I have the power over the source of life. I have the power over all of creation. These signs are meant to show both Moses and God's people and eventually Pharaoh that God's power will bring all of this to pass. No matter how much you fight against it, no matter how much you resist it, no matter like 
how much you believe it or not, God will bring it to pass. And God provides these signs to Moses in particular right here to show that it's only through radical dependence on God's power that he will be able to persuade God's people. It's not about how well he does the things he does, but it's about how God does the things he does. But how are we to depend on God's power in our calling? Like, we don't have a staff, right? We don't get to take a cup into the Mississippi River and dump it out and say, look, there's blood. Like, we don't, we don't have those signs, right? Wrong. We actually have something much better, much more powerful than Moses did. We have the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Did you hear that? The gospel is the power of God. More than a staff, more than a, a cloak, more than all of that sort of stuff, the gospel is the power of God. The good news about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven and the throne room of God, like all of that are signs exhibiting God's power once and for all. Let's break it down a little bit. According to Colossians 2.15, Paul writes this. In verse 14, he kind of breaks down how um, through Jesus, God's making us alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So um, for many of you in the room, you're likely familiar. Yes, the good news of the gospel is that God gives us forgiveness of sins. But he goes on in verse 15, and we often miss this and don't think about what Jesus was doing on the cross is also doing this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you think the staff with the snake thing is a cool sign of God's triumph over rulers and authorities, like Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate sign of that. Because what the rulers in Jesus' day thought was that by crucifying him, they were winning the day. But three days later, Jesus showed up and proved him otherwise. Jesus' death and resurrection shows off God's power over all rulers and authorities, both spiritual and physical. The gospel also shows off God's power to judge as he pours out his justice for our sins on Jesus so that we might have forgiveness. He also shows off God's power to save from death and sin and the resurrection that not only did Jesus die for our sins, but that he ensured that death was defeated once and for all. He proved that all that he did on the cross actually has a lasting effect that you and I can count on because he's not a savior dead in a grave, but he's a savior living on a throne for all of eternity. And the gospel also shows off God's power to reign over all of God's creation because when, after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples and then he ascended to heaven. And we often leave out that part of the gospel because we just don't know what to do with it. Okay, like Jesus is now in heaven. Like, it's great. Um, what's that mean for us? Well, he's, he goes and he steps on the right hand of the throne of God. And he's reigning now over all of creation. Shows that God's power over all of life. But the gospel doesn't just show off God's power like these signs did. It also is the power of God for salvation. Look, our call to speak the gospel, to spread the good news, to bring renewal through the good news of the gospel doesn't depend on our ability to persuade people. It depends on the message about Jesus itself. It's the message. It's, it's sharing who Jesus is 
just merely communicating it, that is where the power is by the Spirit of God. Not in our ability, but in God's power in the gospel. But even doing that requires us to embrace radical dependence on the power of God, to give up our pride that, hey, those we lead to faith, those we minister to are somehow indebted to us or somehow like going to be impressed by us. It, it calls us to give up our self-sufficiency in trying to rely on our good ideas or our ability to persuade other people or uh, our personality, whatever it may be. God calls us to radical dependence upon him upon his power, first and foremost. But that's not where this interaction between God and Moses ends. It also continues on into a second insecurity that Moses has. Verses 10 and 13, it says, But the Lord said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then after God responds to him for a couple of verses, Moses then finally just says in verse 13, Lord, send someone else. Like he's just at the end of his rope. He's just completely overwhelmed. Because he has this insecurity that you and I can probably relate to. And it's this, it seems to be what's underlying here because of the way that God addresses it. There's this fear of failure. Even after Moses hears all that God promises through these powerful signs, this other insecurity props up. This time, though, he's worried that he, he won't communicate God's message clearly. Then when push comes to shove, that on his own, he'll fail. And that fear of failure paralyzes him so much that he begs God, send someone else. But God doesn't let him off the hook that easily. He doesn't let you and me off the hook that easily. And the call that every single one of us have to take part in his mission. But he calls us instead to radical dependence on his presence. To not fear failure, have fear of man, but to radically depend on his power. And right here what we see is a radical dependence on his presence. Verses 11 through 12, we see this. The Lord responds to him and says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. First off, he promises his presence with him personally. I will be with your mouth. He will strengthen, like God's promising to strengthen and sustain every step, every word of Moses, that his power will be with him personally, every step of the way. And he also goes on to make, when, when Moses finally in verse 13 says, well, God, that's not even good enough. Like still just send someone else. Verse 14, this is what it says, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. God also goes on to promise his presence with Moses through others, particularly his brother Aaron here. He's going to provide support to him. You're not going to have to do this on his own. And when Moses cries out and begs God to, to let, like, send someone else, like God, God's anger is kindled. He's like, uh, essentially because 
like, Moses, don't you get it at this point? Like, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to leave you hanging. But he says, just to prove to you that I'm not going to leave you hanging, once again, Aaron's already on his way. I'm going to provide you the support you need. And here's the good news for us. The Lord does the same thing for us as he blesses us with even greater promises that he's delivered. Because when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell inside each and every one of us personally so that God's presence isn't limited to a space like the temple of God, but he goes with us everywhere we go. And that means that all the people that are a part of this church family and all the people that are part of God's family all throughout the world, like they have God's spirit dwelling in them. And we're not meant to do this thing alone. We're not meant to pursue God's call alone. He means to, to lead us to radically depend upon him in part by depending upon one another. Look, following God's call requires radical dependence on the power and presence of God. And that means dying to self. That means giving up our independence. That means giving up our self-reliance. That means a whole host of things. And even more, as we'll talk about in a second. But even as costly as that is, as much humility as that requires, radical dependence itself is priceless. See, for radical dependence, is not just for the good of the mission out there. It's for the good of your own soul. I think about the seasons of my life in which I've, honestly, most of the time, been forced into radical dependence upon the Lord. Seasons where Becca and I have struggled with finances and, and like, where is enough going to come to be able to pay the bills and to, to figure out this issue or that? The Lord forces me to financial dependence upon him. When I was 12 years old, I was diagnosed with cancer, and in that moment, like, couldn't even process what that word is, and yet it was in that time and in, in those difficult times and a host of others that I could, could talk about in which God forced me to radical dependence upon him because I had nowhere else to turn. It was in those times that God grew me and grew my pleasure in him and grew my satisfaction in him and allowed me to let go of my own self-reliance and, and my own satisfaction in passing things in the world. It was this radical dependence on his power and his presence in which he often has to force us to because we're not willing to let go of our own independence on our own. He's forcing Moses to it, but it's for his own good. It's for his satisfaction in the Lord. And so even our radical dependence, as costly as it is, it's priceless as well. But that's not the only cost. Radical obedience is also a major cost. And it comes in three forms. We'll talk about it. But what we're talking about here when we talk about radical obedience is an uncomfortable and costly path that requires of us as followers of Jesus, not just to sit back, let go and let God kind of thing, but an active, distinct, costly obedience. And that's what we see in verses 18 to 26. But the first act of radical obedience we're called to may be one of the most costly things, one of the, the strangest things that we can do in the eyes of the culture around us is forsaking the comfortable. Verses 18 through 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. 
Moses' first steps, his first active steps in following his call was to uproot his wife and his kids, to leave behind the life that he had built over the past 40 years. You realize that? He's been in the wilderness, building a family, building a life for four decades at this point. That's not a small sacrifice. That's all his wife had ever known. For all Moses knew, in addition to that, when he goes to Jethro and says, let, let us go back. Like, he doesn't have the promise yet of verse 19 that, that all the men who were seeking your life are dead. He takes this first step. For all he knows, but there's still people that are looking to kill him in Egypt. Going back to Egypt was anything but safe or comfortable for Moses. And nothing... <laughs> about following God, following Jesus' call on our lives is comfortable or easy. And that's what makes it so rare to find a people that are pursuing God's call faithfully. Because our culture is obsessed with comfort and safety and convenience. Most parents' greatest hope and greatest dream for their kids is that they would be safe and comfortable. And trust me, as a parent myself, like I, I get the temptation to that now. Like I, I want them to be safe, yes. But how much more should we want our kids to pursue the call of God, no matter how costly it will be for them? Yes, that costs us something. But to raise up kids that are willing to uh, pay the cost themselves, that's part of the call of parenthood, of Christian parenthood. And we often in our own individual lives feel that pressure and temptation from the culture around us and from our own flesh within us to pursue what's comfortable and safe in our job choices where we live, and a host of other choices we make. And the church, following God's call is going to make you uncomfortable. If it doesn't, you're not listening well. It's going to make those who love you uncomfortable. Because, yeah, they're concerned about your comfort and safety. When Becca and I chose to move to New York City, just a couple of months after getting married. Um, she, was, she had a teaching job, good, solid teaching job. I was going to be working on a PhD, and we thought we had our plan together. And um, when we decided to move to New York City, um, when both all of our families from the South, uh, small town, that kind of thing, um, our parents were not particularly thrilled. Yes, Becca gave up her job, um, and when we were moving, we had no guarantee of funding. Right? We, were going to like, we were going to serve at a church plant in which we were going to have to raise all of my support for that. Becca didn't have a job guaranteed. Like, it did seem crazy, and they were probably right to think, like, is this foolish or not? But we were convinced it was God's call. And so we went. And we radically depended upon him in those times because we didn't have any other option. Moving to New York City to be a part of a church plant wasn't comfortable, and it wasn't safe in the eyes of the world. We looked crazy. But if comfortable and safe is what you're looking for, you will be disappointed by the way of Jesus. I love how C.S. Lewis drives this point home in the Chronicles of Narnia. When uh, C.S. Lewis portrays um, Jesus in the character of Aslan, if you haven't read it, uh, he's a lion. Um, and he describes Aslan this way. Lewis writes, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If 
Following God's call requires forsaking the comfortable. But you can do that because you can trust in the goodness of our King. It's a radical cost, but, but the cost doesn't end there. You're also called in radical obedience to confront the darkness. Verses 21 to 23, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. See, Moses hadn't heard this part yet. All right. He said, I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to accomplish this. You're going to go proclaim this. But this is new news. He's peeling back the curtain a little bit. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, just imagine saying this. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your son. Imagine standing before the ruler of any nation, the president of the United States today, and saying something like that, bringing an ultimatum to them like that. You, like you'd be in jail before you blinked, right? <laughs> like Moses has started taking these steps of forsaking the comfortable, and God pulls back the curtain a little bit and shows him just how high the stakes will be in confronting the darkness. That's what Moses represents, remember, that's part of what he's representing all throughout the book of Exodus because this Pharaoh is never even named. He's partly a symbolic figure that all throughout the rest of Scripture will come up again as this picture of, dark, of, of the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. And Moses is called to stand before the most powerful ruler on the face of the planet and communicate this ultimatum, let my people go or your son dies. <sighs> that's got some cost to it, right? Like, Pharaoh could have, like, killed moment Moses right there. Like, that's, that's the possibility. And just like Moses, God calls us to confront the darkness, to stand on the truth of God's word in a world that wants to define truth in their own way, to, to speak the good news to a world that finds it offensive and foolish, to live distinct lives that are a front to modern sensibilities. And following God's call, he leads us into a spiritual war that requires courage, suffering, difficulty of innumerable kinds. God makes no promises that it'll go smoothly. In fact, if anything, he promises the opposite, that it won't go smoothly. That those who faithfully follow after him should expect suffering in this life. Yes, he's working it out all for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, according to Romans 8.28. But it doesn't say he's going to ensure they're all good, easy, comfortable things. He calls us to forsake the comfortable and to confront the darkness. It's costly. But that's not all. Like the, He doesn't just end with that, right? The passage goes on. God's not only interested in what you'll do for him. He's also interested in how you walk with him. Now, those first two are much more oriented towards the mission and the call that we're going to be doing externally. But he's incredibly interested in, the, in how you will continue to walk with him, even in the midst of that. Verses 24 to 26 hammer this home. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. It's like, whoa, what in the world? Is that not like, what, what's happening now? Like, Moses is taking these steps of obedience, and suddenly God is about to, like, kill Moses? This story seems to be going in a weird direction. Well, it only gets weirder. 
Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let Moses alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right, that is one of the strangest passages in all of Exodus, much less all of Scripture. I was tempted, like I'm tempted to just like uh, go to Matt and say, tag, you're it, come on up here for this portion of the sermon. But, um, <laughs> but we know that all scriptures God breathes and profitable for teaching. And so that kept me just like diving into the, okay, like what is it that you have to teach us here in this portion of the passage, Lord? As strange as this is, the Lord has much to teach us here. Here we're confronted with the high standard that God holds for his people, especially leaders. Moses was going to be proclaiming radical commands and potential judgment on the son of Pharaoh, but his own house wasn't even in order. He lacked basic Hebrew faithfulness, the circumcision of his son. He would be demanding that Pharaoh fear the Lord, but he wasn't living by a fear of the Lord himself. See, God not only cares about what we do for him, he cares about how we walk with him, that we would live lives of integrity. And that's the third piece of ra- like what radical obedience looks like. The cost of radical obedience is, is a life of integrity. God demands faithfulness. Not perfection, but a life marked by a fear of the Lord, distinct from the world to the point of perceived foolishness. This, this life of integrity in no way saves you. But it is what God calls us to. It's what he equips us for and empowers us for. It's what grace is to fuel us towards. Unfortunately, far too many Christian leaders have failed in in regards to this. You could probably think of stories you know yourselves. And not too dissimilar to Nixon, who we started the story with. as, As leaders get caught up in a cause bigger than themselves, maybe even average Christians, we can lose sight on the most important aspect of our pursuit, which is the character of our own walk with the Lord. Yes, a life of of character and integrity is costly. When you're not willing to do the same things that the world does to get ahead, especially as you forsake the comfortable and confront the darkness. All of that radical obedience is incredibly costly, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Not just because what we're going to get to in a moment, though. Because just like radical dependence is priceless, so is radical obedience. It's priceless for the good of our own souls. It's priceless in this way. So this past summer, um, I, I've been reading about uh, some uh, the benefits of cold plunges. But I thought that sounded miserable and those people were crazy. But then I decided, I'll give it a shot. Okay, so I uh, gave my first shot of, of a cold plunge, and um, the first time I yelped like a little girl, and, uh, and like basically couldn't breathe for the first like minute. Okay, I barely made it two minutes in. Like you're supposed to be in there at least three to five minutes to get the benefits, um, but uh, two minutes in, barely made it in, jumped out, um, and honestly felt incredibly refreshed afterwards. And began to feel some of the benefits. I committed to doing it a few times more. And let me tell you, it never became easy. (laughs) I still have to like psych myself up right before I'm about to do a cold plunge every single time. It does get a little easier. But it's partly because the payoff. 
is better and better every single time. Radical obedience is similar. It's never going to be easy. God's always going to bring us to do something more difficult than the last. But taking hard steps when it becomes a habit and a rhythm of our lives, it does become easier. And you begin to experience the fruit of radical obedience in your life and greater satisfaction in the Lord and greater renewal in your own heart. And God cares about our own walk and our souls even more than what we do for him. But in the end, though, what makes that radical dependence and that radical obedience worth it? What makes pursuing God's call priceless? It's ultimately the results. Resounding renewal. Verses 27 to 31, where, we, uh, where Nick read for us earlier. I, I will read it again, just to remind us. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard, the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. As Moses takes the good news of God's plan back to Egypt, we see joy and hope spread, starting with Aaron and then expanding to the elders of Israel and finally resounding throughout the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of God's people. The message is received. It's embraced. It's believed in by God's power. What he promised to do, he accomplished. By God's power, faith is restored in verse 31. Hope is invigorated because they realize that God has seen their affliction and their joy overflows It's a worship of God, and he gets all the glory. Because Moses radically depended upon the Lord, not on himself. And this should be stunning to us. It was stunning to Moses. Partly why he didn't think it was possible that they would believe him is because this is people who had been in utter despair. Their sons, right after birth, had been hunted down and killed. Their workload had been oppressive. God's promises of life with them seem incredibly far off as he was seemingly silent for so long during their time in Israel. They are the last people in the world that you would expect to turn on a dime, believe and trust in God, and suddenly rejoice in him. But through Moses, God brings renewal that resounds for his glory and the good of his people. That's priceless. For every cost that Moses paid, in that moment, he would have been rejoicing. He would have recognized how worth it it all was. And God invites us into this same life-transforming, community-altering kind of pursuit. He's given each and every one of you, each and every one of us, a unique role to play in his grand plan for all of eternity. His mission to make all things new to make the wrong things right, to restore his presence with his people in our lives. And just like Moses, God has called us to share a message. 
the good news of the gospel about Jesus. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. As we show and tell the gospel, we can and will witness resounding renewal around us. Our neighbors will find freedom from addiction through life in Jesus. Our coworkers will find joy beyond financial success. Our community will find hope that lasts. And at Anthem, we're praying and working to see 1% of Columbia find renewal in Jesus. I mean, can you just imagine if just 1% of Columbia found renewal in Jesus, what that would do to our town, to our campus? And we're convinced that we can see that happen, and it will, by the power of God, if we pay the cost of radical dependence and radical obedience. The question is, will we? But look, here's the thing. Anthem's vision doesn't end here in Columbia with spreading renewal here. We long to be a part of, of renewal resounding from Columbia to the very ends of the earth. For those of you that don't know, Anthem was planted in Columbia about seven years ago as a part of a network of churches called the Salt Network. It has a massive vision for the renewal of over 400 plus major college campuses. That's in the United States. That's what that map is all about over there. And then there's some all across the globe. And we're here today... Because a church, because Candeo Church, in a town in Iowa that I can never remember, all right, still never met people from Iowa until I moved here, all right? So we're here today because Candeo Church in Iowa sent a team who followed God's call despite the cost. Candeo sacrificed people, resources, time, and energy to spread renewal beyond their own campus and city. And as a result, right here in Columbia, we've seen countless lives transformed. We've seen businesses and neighborhoods impacted. We've seen leaders developed and missionaries sent like we saw last week. And now it's Anthem's time to send. Lord willing, in the fall of 2025, we will be replanting our first church and launching a salt company at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Becca and I, as well as Nick and Peyton, will be leading a team to plant our lives and make Jesus non-ignorable in Knoxville. Why Knoxville? I'm glad you asked. A couple reasons. One, gospel partnership. Or gospel potential. Gospel potential. One, the University of Tennessee is one of actually only uh, nine four-year uh, colleges in the Knoxville area, but on the University of Tennessee campus alone, there's 36,000 plus college students with a huge percentage that are unengaged by the gospel. And the community itself, despite being in the thick of the Bible Belt, like start being like the buckle of the Bible Belt, okay, like only sees 21% of people attend a church within a given year. In fact, 40% of Knoxville are what are called nuns. They, they don't and have not ever had any affiliation with Christianity. And then 39% of Knoxville are considered duns, which means like they did have some affiliation, but they've walked away from the church altogether. There's a huge need to take the gospel to Knoxville, Tennessee. The gospel potential is huge, but also the renewal potential. Knoxville, Tennessee is one of the highest church per capita cities in America. So again, why go there? Well, 80% of churches are plateaued or declining in America, and that applies as much to Knoxville as anywhere else. Those churches are struggling to disciple people well and to witness faithfully to the gospel. And as a result, that's a major contributing factor to why so many people in Knoxville are walking away from the church, whether it's from hurt, 
or from a host of other things. The opportunity to not only reach the campus, but also to raise up college students and community leaders to not only plant and replant one church with a salt company, but also to then send right there in the Knoxville area to help other churches and other neighborhoods experience that renewal over and over again until we see a widespread renewal movement in Knoxville. It's massive. And I believe God's going to do it. And so there's gospel potential, there's renewal potential, but we don't want it to just stay in Knoxville either. There's sending potential in Knoxville. As churches are replanted and campuses are engaged and renewed throughout Knoxville, we'll have not just one church in Knoxville, but a family of churches ready to send leaders and people and resources to another collegiate city to do it all over again. To reach, raise, and release the next generation for God's glory and the good of the nations. Look, a lot of unknowns lie ahead. A lot of costs that we can't even begin to count. But every one of us has our part to play. Whether you are a goer and you choose to go with us, and we're going to need all kinds of leaders and people to go as a part of the team. Or whether you stay here and you're a part of continuing to spread renewal here and send well there. We all have our part to play. Whether God's stirring In your hearts, the call to go, to forsake the comfortable, to confront the darkness, and to learn radical dependence on mission for him in Knoxville, or you're a sender that's going to forsake the comfortable, learn radical dependence on your own right as you pray and support that work. God is calling all of us to pay a cost for his glory and the good of others. Look, a lot of unknowns lie ahead, but the one thing I do know, the cost will be high, but the renewing or the resounding renewal is priceless. Anthem Church, how is God calling you to pursue his calling for your life? And are you willing to pay the cost? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning just grateful for your word, as always, that you build us up in your word, that you, you challenge us, that you, Lord, you, you, you work on us to lead us to dependence upon you, that we might have life in you and, and life to the full, joy complete and overflowing in you, God. And I pray that we would pursue your calling despite the cost. Lord, that we would spread your renewal from Columbia to Knoxville to the very ends of the earth for your glory and others' good. And that we would be a people that are willing to pay whatever cost it takes. To lay down whatever comfort or security we have for the good of others. For you're worth it. And they're worth it. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.